Well, I'll tell you right now, if you can't preach after something like that, you probably ought to turn your Bible in. I want to just, before I get into uh, today's message, I want to recognize some folks, not to embarrass them or put them on the spot, but to honor them. I'm so grateful for all of our college students that have connected with our ministry. We had a, an incredible kickoff Wednesday night. I, I heard word of, of just great things that God is doing in and through that college ministry. And one of our college students, Caleb Powell, has his family with him. They're from Olive Branch. I'm so grateful for Rodney and Kelly and, and Richard and Rita Powell. If you guys would wave at us back there, and if you guys would help me to welcome them today. We're so glad y'all are here. Rodney actually flew to Idaho years ago and helped drive us back to Mississippi. And so you can thank or blame him, whichever is the case. Turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 7. And while you're turning there, I'm going to set up a story that you need to hear. We've been studying through Ecclesiastes for several weeks. We've got several weeks to go. This is an incredible book in the Bible. It's becoming quickly one of my favorites. It's like a a, a, an incredible uh, evangelistic track, if you will, that shows the futility of life without God. And it just points to how God is the only source of hope. Once you get there to Ecclesiastes 7, let me tell you about my friend Jeff. In fact, my friends from Olive Branch will know this story well, and I don't know that I can get through the first part of this. Jeff is the kind of guy that you want to hang out with. Witty and quick and fun and funny. The kind of guy that makes you feel right at home. You just always felt engaged in his presence. He was interested in you. A loving husband and a great dad to his two boys. I think we may even have some pictures, I hope, of them. There's Jeff with his boys younger on. He was a deacon at the church, an amazing neighbor, and a precious friend. In his early 30s, let me show you another picture there of he and his wife. In his early 30s, he was arising in the ranks of the Baptist health care system. Fairly quickly, he became a CFO of the Baptist hospital system in Memphis. So he had you know, by the world by the tail in terms of the standards of this world. But he was a godly man, respected leader in the community. Had a beautiful home, a wonderful family. He had sort of the American dream and all that it promises. At 45, my friend Jeff started having some muscle tremors, and he had difficulty gripping and grasping things. Well, being the CFO of a hospital system, he was afforded access to incredible care, and they went directly to the Mayo Clinic, and they began to run tests, and it confirmed their worst fears. Jeff was diagnosed at 45 with ALS. If you know anything about ALS, it's a particularly cruel disease. It really does some great damage, robbing its victims progressively of the use of their muscles. Basically, anything you can control will come out of your control, walking and speaking and eating and then one day even breath itself. Your mind is literally trapped in a body that doesn't work anymore, if you can imagine. And he was a sharp mind, so that was particularly difficult. His health deteriorated pretty quickly, and it wasn't long. There was a rotation of the guys in the church that would go and sit with him, and we would stay with him and help him. And it was in one of those rotations, one of those afternoons that I now look back on as a gift from God. And Jeff looked me in the eye, and this was before he lost his ability to speak, and he said, Scott, I feel like I've won the lottery. 
And I said, your medicine has really gotten to you. And he laughed about it. He said, this may very well be the best thing that ever happened to me. And I said, you're really, really farther gone than we thought. I said, Jeff, how can you say something like that? He said, Scott, God has given me time to think about those things that are most important. God's given me time to invest praying and and reading his word. And Jeff took time during that period to buy Bibles for all of his nieces and nephews and family and co-workers from the hospital. And he, he shared the gospel with them. He had others help him to mark up those Bibles. And he wrote letters to the people. In fact, he got to a stage in his uh, progression, if you will, of the disease that they got him outfitted with a, a system with his computer where he could look at the screen and type by blinking his eyes and he would type letters. When he could no longer talk, he would type letters to people and it was incredible how much his faith came alive. The d- disease progressed and rapidly ALS took Jeff's life. Before he was totally incapacitated, he shared his testimony at our church. We recorded it that night with permission of his family and and his own permission. And I wanted to set this story up because I want to show you just a brief clip of that testimony. And I figured that would help you to appreciate this all the more. In a lot of ways, this pastor must have been the best year of my life. I've grown more spiritually than I ever have. In my heart, God given me a home. God has given me a base in my heart. And I know that I can trust him no matter what. Because of that, I don't have any fear anymore. And God's taking away the depression and the fear and all my anxiety. Be strong and take on, which means we said to me, take on, is saying, I got it. I got it. You can either live, you can either live like you're dying, or, or, or you can live. And he's helping me do that. What I want to tell you is the primary way that God has spoken to me during this is through His Word, through the Bible. He used others, a lot of you in this room, through your hands and your feet, and your prayers and your generosity. And that's how, that's how God told me that He is real. And he is not not slack. And he knows what's going on. And he's got it under control. And God has really opened our eyes that there's a lot of hurt in the world. But I'm here today. You can trust him. I love you. Thanks.
My friend Jeff experienced the power of Ecclesiastes 7 and what we're going to see this morning. Ecclesiastes 7, it, it almost seems as if it was written last week and it's a message for every single person here. You need this message in your life. I need it. Why? Because it's about perspective. The preacher that we've been studying through these first six chapters, we, we know his name as Koheleth. That just simply means proclaimer or preacher or teacher. He's sharing reflections on reality. And he's talking about wisdom and insight for how we should live. We're finding meaning for life in this book. And if you remember, in the very first six chapters, he talked about how meaningless the search is, that nothing under the sun brings lasting satisfaction. Wine, women, and song. He tried everything there is. He tried his wealth. He tried to accumulate wisdom, and none of that seemed to work. Ecclesiastes 7, you need to hear this, is really sort of in the middle of his discourse. We're sort of turning a corner here. He's exhausted the futility of life under the sun. And now he begins to explore and express what life above the sun looks like when God's in the equation. And when God is brought into the equation of our lives, perspective changes everything. He's going to offer for you and me today really a picture of God's economy because there are some times when things really, really look bad to us and God says bad is better. You said that sounds really weird. Well, we're going to begin to look and see that most of what we look at from our human eyes is upside down. And God today, through Ecclesiastes 7, wants to set those things right side up. Perspective changes everything. And it changes throughout the course of our lives. Even before we get to our text, I, I was fascinated by this. I read an article this week that was incredible. It was an interview with these two ladies. Long before classmates.com and event planners uh, at like reunions.com, there are different ones that are put together. Before you could search people's names on the internet and look for things, there were two ladies that got together and they started a business. And their business was all about helping high schools plan high school reunions. They would do everything. They would book the venue and they would establish the menu, but they would also look for classmates that nobody could find. And they would do sort of investigation and find people. And one of the things in this interview that they talked about was not the process of planning reunions, but the attitude that happens at reunions. And I'll take just a minute to go through this, but I thought it was really cool. They said this, usually in the first 10 years after high school, people finish college and start careers and get married and have kids. So we come to the first reunion, the 10-year reunion. Most everybody there is around 28 years old. You still have your looks. You still have your strength. The shine is still on your marriage. And your kids aren't teenagers yet, and so you think you're pretty successful. Truth be told, what they said was, it's sort of like high school on steroids. The 10-year reunion, the cool kids still act like the cool kids, and the nerds are still the nerds, and the cliques are still very real. And everyone's on parade. In fact, they said this. They said it's like the Westminster Dog Show. Everybody's just prancing out in front of everyone else to prove what they've done in these 10 years. How about the 20-year reunion? Now everybody's 38 years old. Your looks and your fitness, they're, they're starting to slide a little bit. One of the ladies said, yeah, people are starting to thicken up like a ballpark frank. 
The new car smell wears off of your marriage. Your kids are teenagers, so undoubtedly humility enters in at the 20-year high school reunion. The cliques are busted up a little more because people see through them now. They've had a little life on them, and in having a little life, they realize how artificial they were. Well, let's talk about the 30th high school reunion. Now everybody's 48, almost 50, and you're just trying to preserve the past. A little more reflective, a little more kind. You talk about your kids and your career, and we come to the 40th high school reunion. Boy, this is a jet through a jet tour through life, isn't it? But the 40-year reunion now, everybody's about to turn 60. And everybody looks the same. Now you've learned that there are some things that are deeper in life, that are more significant than the things that you drive and the house that you live in and the job that you did. And it's kind of interesting because many of you at this point have lost classmates. Some maybe even have lost spouses. At the 40-year reunion, when everybody's 58 years old, they start talking about and bragging on their grandkids. What about a 50th reunion? Now everybody is 68. Aware keenly of those that are not there because the numbers have borne it out that there's more and more that are gone. Now everybody's almost 70 and you're downsizing and now you're bragging to each other about how small your house is. And you're bragging to each other about how you can't go up and down the stairs like you used to. And you show each other the scars and you talk about body parts that are not there anymore. And and if somebody looks too young, everybody talks about them because you know they've had a little work done and they're trying to keep up the appearance. They're doing their best to fight gravity and to fight time. But it's equalizing. And these two ladies said this, the rich, the poor, all the same. In essence, the people are saying, we survived. And it's a tender, tender reunion at 70 years old because they know there may not be a 60th or 70th. There may not be too many more than that. And I don't want that to be depressing to anyone here. It's just a fact of life. But here's something that they said that just riveted me. They said, we learned something way, way far too late that we should have known much earlier, that life is not about acquiring and exhibiting. That life is about faithfulness to God and faithfulness to your spouse and loving your children and loving your family and loving your friends and enjoying good books and enjoying good, good meals and making a difference in the life of someone else. Now you say, Scott, those are all fine and good, but what about God? Well, the foundation that we will see that is laid in Ecclesiastes is that under the sun there is nothing we can do to find satisfaction and yet God has made everything beautiful and right in its time and he said eternity in our hearts so wherever you are on that maybe you're a long long way away from your 10 year reunion maybe you're still in middle school today and to hear of those years clipping off you you say that's a a galaxy far far away maybe you're a long way from your 10 year high school reunion on the other end of the spectrum But regardless of where we are, our perspective of life is significant. So we pick up in Ecclesiastes 7.1. Let's read here in Scripture. A good reputation is more valuable than costly perfume. And the day you die is better than the day you were born. Better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. After all, everyone dies. So the living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. 
For sadness has a refining influence on us. A wise person thinks a lot about death when a fool thinks only about having a good time. Better to be criticized by a wise person than praised by a fool. A fool's laughter is quickly gone like thorns crackling in a fire. This also is meaningless. Extortion turns people into fools and bribes corrupt the heart. Finishing is better than starting. Patience is better than pride. Control your temper for your anger labels you as a fool. Don't long for the good old days. This is not wise. Wisdom is even better when you have money. Both are a benefit as you go through life. Wisdom and money can get you almost anything, but only wisdom can save your life. What I want to share with you this morning is this, that from God's perspective and God's economy, our perspective can be completely upside down. And one of my sincere goals for this entire series of sermons is that you and I would look deeper beneath the surface of daily life and we would see the bigger picture, that we would develop an eternal perspective. You need to get straight on what life is really all about. Because if you're putting all of your stock in your house and in your 401k and in your career or in your family or your kids or your spouse or your grandkids, you will find yourself woefully disappointed one day. You will find yourself coming to a place where satisfaction simply cannot come from things that are unsatisfying eternally. Solomon's doing the same thing. Solomon is pushing us to think not just above the sun but outside the box. We need to see this, that a pain-free life may not be the very best life. That's difficult. You realize that pain can be profitable, that that struggles and trials can have a beneficial purpose in your life. What do trials do? They purify us. They let you know who you really are. When you're jostled, trials begin to show you that you can't make it on your own. You need to think about this. Trials perfect us. They make us pray. They bring us to the end of our own physical and emotional and intellectual rope. And trials oftentimes can drive us to the Word of God. Trials make us trust. Trials make everything that you learned in Sunday school all of your life become real. Because trials can drive you to Christ. So Solomon makes all of these reflections of life under the sun, and now he writes almost like he does in Proverbs. He starts giving you some statements, and he's going to give us seven better statements. And he's going to say one thing is better than another in God's economy. When bad is better. When we understand that our lives are upside down. So let's look at these. On the very first one, he says this, honor is better than luxury. Honor is better than luxury. If you look at the text, it says that a good name is better than fine perfume. He's saying that in that day, people would get all dolled up and dressed up, and they would look for a good time, and in doing so, the luxury of that fine perfume that not everybody could afford or have access to, he was saying a good name is better than that because that's not going to last. Reputations last longer than a lifetime. Would you agree with that? You'll be remembered for something, and it won't probably be the clothes that you wore. Perhaps it will be your character. And Solomon is saying that you may have luxury in life, but that luxury ends at death. That's why it's so critical to hear what Solomon 
is saying to us today, God shows us that he's not committed to our short-term happiness as much as he is to our character. God's not as interested in you being happy as he is in you being holy. And he tells us what really matters is a good name. Our lives are not unlike the culture of Solomon's day. Most people go through life today in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, looking to have a good time. We get dressed up and we go out to eat and we visit friends and we catch a movie and we do all kinds of things, a concert or a ball game, essentially trying to have as much fun as we can have. But character and obedience is far, far better than wealth. Number two, I want you to see this. He says there in verse one, death is better than life. Death is better than life. That seems like a strange statement, Pastor, but look back with me, if you will, at the text. The day you die is better than the day that you are born. At birth, everyone rejoices and they celebrate, but truth be told, that kid hadn't done nothing yet. Smile and be cute. That kid may bring heartache. Have you ever thought about that? That kid may bring rebellion. We don't know. It's kind of interesting. But the day of one's death is altogether different. This afternoon, we will go to a, a cemetery, and we will say about Miss Corjoyce, well done, well done. What an example. What an encouragement. Good and faithful service. She heard those words as she entered into heaven last week. I can't imagine the people from uh, the nations that she served, Nigeria and Ghana, and the people all around the Pine Belt that she influenced for Jesus Christ that were there, and Jesus Christ himself meeting her there, and her husband Ralph meeting her there, and all of the glories of the promises that they had staked their hopes on are now by sight what they'd experienced only by faith. What Solomon is saying to us here is this. The pain is not the worst thing that can happen to you. And your perspective on pain is important. We'll get back to that in a moment, this idea of death and life, especially in light of where we move forward. Number three, mourning is better than feasting. Mourning is better than feasting. That's in verse 2. And the text says, better to spend your time at funerals than parties. After all, everyone dies. So the living should take this to heart. Again, what a strange statement. You say, Pastor, I think I'd take my chances going to parties rather than funerals. But listen to what he's saying. Mourning is this outward expression of sorrow or grief. And the teacher reminds us that a funeral can actually be a good thing. A funeral can make you smart. It can make you wise. Every time I've ever preached a funeral, I preach the gospel. I share with people very pointedly, Jesus saves, that we are in alerts without Christ, that we are in our sin, dead and separated from God. And the amazing thing is, at a funeral, I've got the most incredible illustration right there. I can point and I can say, their body is here, but they are not here. There's separation. There is death that has occurred, and death points us to ultimate realities that are far beyond anything that we can see with our natural eyes. It's interesting, too, when I preach a funeral and I share the gospel, I've got the attention of the crowd. I ran across several years ago a tombstone that has haunted me. It was a voice speaking from beyond the grave. Let me show it to you. It said this, remember me as you pass by. 
As you now are, so once was I. As I am now, so you must be. Prepare for death and follow me. Sobering words for us, regardless of what you do. And again, I'm not trying to make Jeff the center of of the, the story, but the illustration is so pointed. To hear him, you would say, he's not the CFO of a hospital. He can barely speak. Well, he was live and vibrant and active just months before he gave that testimony. In a moment's notice, all was stripped away. And he began to see life with a crystal clarity that he'd not seen before. And death can do that. And mourning can do that. When we find ourselves mourning, it's good to go to a funeral. It's pretty simple. Sometimes we're not impressed by truth or by doctrine, but we are always shaped by pain. Let me say that again. Sometimes we're not impressed by truth or doctrine, but we are always shaped by pain. Hard times can make you wise. In verse 3, a funeral can not only make you wise, it can make you happy. That brings us to our fourth better statement. Sorrow is better than laughter. Sorrow is better than laughter. Look at the text. Sorrow is better than laughter for sadness has a refining influence on us. A wise person thinks a lot about death while a fool only thinks about having a good time. Verse 3 is literally rendered this. Sorrow is better than laughter for when a face is sad, a heart might be happy. That's kind of interesting. When, when, the, the, heart, when the face is sad, a heart might be happy. What does he mean by that? Well, when you've been through pain and you've learned some things, you can be happy. But I've seen a whole lot of people in bars partying it up and everybody thinks you're happy, but on the inside you're dying, you're miserable. Anybody ever been there? I mean, the life of the party on the outside and your world was disintegrating, your heart was crumbling. I I think about this. You don't have to be alone to be lonely. You can be a crowd filled with people and your heart break in two. I could go preach. Let me just illustrate it this way. I could go preach in any bar, any club in the state of Mississippi or anywhere in the world, and more than likely I'd have very little interest. I would probably have people mocking me or laughing at me or ignoring me, but you let me preach to a funeral. You let me preach to a crowd where someone has had their life snuffed out. They're gone from this place. I've got everyone's attention. When you go through some pain and you learn some things, It can make you happy. But you watch. When someone's trying to laugh their way out of pain instead of learn their way out of pain, or they're trying to drown their pain or numb their pain in some way, you and I have both seen so many people that are heartbroken. And those brokenhearted people at the highest level are some of the most inebriated and most entertained around. Let me ask you a question. I want audience participation. How many of you have been shaped in your life by pain? Anybody? It may have been a football coach that made you run sprints, and that shaped you. It may have been a tragedy that ensued in your life. It may have been a storm like a hurricane, but your life has been shaped by pain. Now, let me ask you this, and you don't have to raise your hands, but you that are parents and grandparents, how many of you have made it a goal of yours that your kids never experience any pain? We're seeing the result of that, by the way. 
We've got a bubble wrap generation of kids that have been so coddled and held. Why do we talk about the greatest generation? What made them great? World War I, World War II, the Great Depression, the Dust Bowl. I'm not a proponent of this or longing for it, but I wonder sometimes when I look at a current generation and say, we need a war. I think about young men at 17 that would step out of an amphibious vehicle and they would charge the beach and charge the enemy at 17. You can try to do everything you want to, mom, to keep your precious little baby boy, your little baby girl, safe from all pain in the world. But sooner or later, you are doing them such a disservice. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying sometimes pain may be the very best teacher. Now, this is not a sadistic message. I don't want you to think that we need to look at this and long for pain. No, we simply need to recognize the world will bring pain. There's confusion. There's chaos in our world today. And if Jesus tarries and does not come back quickly, we're going to continue to pursue through it. And you won't have any clue of how to make sense of it if you don't understand what he's saying. He's saying to us some very pointed things. He's saying to us that the mind of the wise is in the house of the morning. Smart guys are at funerals because that's the end of every man. And the mind of the fool is at the party. The best thing for you and me may not be a pain-free life. In fact, James said it this way in the New Testament. I want you to read it with me, James 1-2. Read it out loud with me. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. He goes on to tell you why. He says, because those trials produce in you endurance. Those trials produce in you the ability to overcome. They produce in you faith in God. And when you and I begin to see that the pains of our life can be uh, greatly, greatly leveraged to learn, to gain wisdom, to learn insight. And isn't it interesting that the Bible says over and over again in this theme that those who live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And yet there's a whole stripe of preaching and teaching that says God wants you healthy, happy, wealthy, and wise all the time. That doesn't sell to a Christian who lives in Afghanistan this morning. You don't need to go preach that you're living your best life now in Kabul if you're a Christian. They don't need that. They need a sovereign God who is eternal, who says, I have overcome death, and you can overcome death and have eternal life. Does that make sense, yes or no? Are we tracking along here? Because I want you to follow this. Number five, rebuke is better than praise. Rebuke is better than praise. Look at verse 5 and 6. Better to be criticized by a wise person. That's simply a rebuke. It's better to be rebuked than to be praised by the fool. I love this. The Hebrew says the song of a fool. It's better to be rebuked by a wise man than have the praises of a fool sung about you. For you to be flattered. I don't know if you remember this movie. There was a book a number of years ago called A Taste of My Own Medicine. And it was made into a movie called The Doctor 
William Hurt played the doctor. Anybody remember that movie? It's been a long time ago. You ought to go rent it sometime and see it. They could have made a Christian drama out of it. It's pretty remarkable, pretty remarkable kind of picture there. He was a, a, a doctor who was fairly callous toward people. He treated his patients like cattle. He, he lived his life in a callous way, very insensitive to the pain of the people around him. He was going through the motions and making money. He had life, again, by the tail in terms of an earthly sense until one day he developed a nagging cough, and he coughed, and he pulled back his handkerchief, and there was blood in the handkerchief. And they went through a series of tests, and they realized he had throat cancer as he coughed up blood. And all of a sudden, through this process of his diagnosis and him waking up to the fact that death is staring him in the face like a mirror, he became Francis of Assisi. I mean, he became the most merciful, intentional doctor you would ever see. My favorite scene in the whole movie, I'll ruin this part, he took a group of medical school residents and he had taught them to be in and out and quick and fast and move on and do your thing. And he checked all of them into the clinic and made them run themselves through all manner of tests. Like they're drawing blood and taking colonoscopies. That's pretty funny to me. Some of y'all haven't gotten to that stage in life. You'll, you'll laugh at that later. But he was teaching them that you need to have compassion to people. Here's, here's the storyline. When we live our lives learning from rebukes of wise people and we submit ourselves to wisdom, it'll change our outlook. Everybody would sing his praises when he's driving the nice car and has the incredible practice. Verse 6, a fool's laughter is quickly gone like thorns crackling in a fire. This is also meaningless. Basically, I would say this. Don't listen to the voice of fools that prop you up. Listen to wisdom even when it hurts. You probably won't like rebuke, but if you don't listen to it, you're a fool. I would say it this way, gather around you people who will tell you what you need to hear, not what you, help me out, want to hear. Some of you like yes people all around you just to tell you what you want to hear. But maybe, just maybe, you need to hear some things and you would gather wisely around you people that love you enough to tell you the truth. Verse 7 through 10 really are batched together and we'll, we'll start drawing this to our close this brings us to our sixth better thing. Patience is better than pride. Patience is better than pride. He talks about money, extortion, and bribes. He basically says this is a, a quick, rich, a get-rich-quick mindset. That somebody that's impatient longs for money. And then he goes on and he talks about the corrupting power of a bribe. You can be the best politician in the world, but sooner or later that temptation will come. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And the Bible says that longing for it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many pangs. This isn't a sermon about money. It's about patience there. But let me tell you this. It's all about pride. You need to understand that patience is better than pride. He's saying that when we're proud, we'll go after as much as we can, as fast as we can, in any way that we can. And you need to know that pride can prevent patience. First, by simply creating in us impatience. Look at verse 8. Finishing is better than starting. Patience is better than pride. 
It's not about how you began. It's about how you finished. When you begin, you talk smack about what you're going to do, the big dreams, the plans. It's about how consistent you were over the course of the end. Have you ever been to a wedding and it was just syrupy sweet? And they look at each other and they're batting their eyelashes and he says, oh, Olivia, I love you. With all of my heart, I love you. And she says, oh, Hiram, I love you and I'm so glad we're together and we're going to be together forever. Yeah, well, let's just try that out for a minute because they've been married 27 minutes. Let's fast forward 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. Let's fast forward and see how they, how they finish the race. It's not about how you start. It's about how you finish. And pride can make you impatient. It can also make you indifferent and irritable. Control your temper for anger labels you as a fool. Don't let your spirit, the scripture says, rush to be angry. Learn self-control. And don't procrastinate. Don't just talk smack. Finish strong. Finish well. But let me add one more thought to this. When he talks about your anger, he's talking about your anger toward God. When you don't get what you want and life is painful and life is difficult, do you shake your fist at heaven and say, God did me wrong? Because there's not one of us in this room that can openly and honestly say that God has done us wrong. You know that, right? Maybe that's not your experience. Pastor, I feel like God's given me a raw deal. You don't know the environment I was raised in. You don't know the pain that I've experienced. You don't know the trouble. Well, you don't know my Jesus. Because Jesus overcame everything that you have come through and more. And he did so for you. In fact, we sang about it. He took your place. Number seven sort of ties the whole thing together. Wealth and wisdom go together. Wisdom is better than wealth. So our text begins and it ends with this notion that wisdom is better than wealth. Honor is better than luxury. Wisdom and money can both protect a person. What he's saying there is, is money is, is an inheritance he talks about. And he says wisdom is like an inheritance. And it can be good. It can save you a lot of heartache. It can protect you to have a little money in a rainy day fund. But luxury stops when you die. And wisdom carries on forever. Wisdom is better than wealth because the heavenly is better than the earthly. This reminds me of Jim Elliott's words. Maybe you remember that story. He was one of five men that were martyred for their faith by the Aka Indians in South America. And Elliott said this often. He said, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. Some of you are holding on so tightly to things that will not bring you any lasting satisfaction. It'll all go back in the box. Your kids or your grandkids will sell it at the estate sale or it'll be pawned off or hauled off to the dump. And it was so important to you in this life. And what he's saying is be wise. Let those things go and trust Jesus. How do we summarize all of this? The better things come from the hand and the power of God. Look with me at the, at the text, 13 and 14. Accept the way God does things. For who can straighten what he has made crooked? Enjoy prosperity while you can, but when hard times strike, realize they both came from God. Remember that nothing in this life is certain. 
None of us gets out of this world alive. We all struggle. And folks, I want you to hear this. Solomon's assessment is that God doesn't always do what is pleasant for you, but he always does what is best. Amen? You say, Pastor, that's kind of a strange message. Maybe you're here for the very first time and you say, I, I, I'm just not sure I get my mind right at what Solomon is saying and what I'm communicating to you is this, very pointedly. We need to wise up. Recognize that the Bible isn't giving to us a crutch in Christianity. Oh, we're just positive thinking. No. This is a reflection on the harshest reality there is. He says life will kick you in the teeth. And when it does, recognize that there's more to this life than this life. And the only way to experience that is in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Today, if that's the need of your life, if you have been living your life under the sun, striving and struggling and frustrated, today you can lay that frustration down and you can experience peace. And the way that you do that is to begin a relationship with God. And there's a very simple pattern to that. It's not magical, but you simply come to him by faith and you say, Lord, I understand what you have done for me is what I needed and couldn't do for myself. We have encouragers that we are are simply um, training all the time to pray with you and to encourage you. And they come down to the front at this time in our service, and in just a moment we're going to sing. And as we're singing, if the need of your life is to pray with one of them, why don't you just walk down the aisle? We'll introduce you to one of them, and they would be glad to pray with you. They won't embarrass you. They're not here to, to harm you in any way. We're here to help you. We're not going to do anything but encourage you, and that's their namesake. But if you need to start a relationship with God, you can do that today. And so as we stand together, as our musicians are making their way, I want everyone to stand. Maybe the need of your life is to unite with this church. You want to join our church. We would love for you to do that. And you can do that. Whatever the prayer need is, whatever the need is, our encouragers are here for you. Let's sing together and you come.